Hello, this is Paul Sachs. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and this is the OFID podcast. And just as a reminder, that's OFID and not OFID. When the history of COVID-19 in the United States is written, it will portray New York City in early 2020 as the center of the storm, the city with by far the largest number of cases and deaths and with hospitals struggling to manage a flood of critically ill people admitted daily with fever, cough, and respiratory failure. Uh, Joining me today is Dr. Eric Bressman, chief medical resident at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. He recently wrote a powerful piece about his experience working in one of the Mount Sinai-affiliated hospitals during the COVID surge, Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. We're going to talk about that experience with him, but first, thank you for joining me, Eric. No problem. Happy to be here. Start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself. What's your story, and, and how did you get into medicine? Yeah, I grew up outside of Chicago in a, a pretty observant Jewish family. My grandparents were all either immigrants or first-generation Americans, mostly having been kind of displaced from Europe, honestly, either by anti-Semitism or directly by the Nazis themselves. And they grew up, uh, for the most part, on Chicago's West and South sides in pretty heavily Jewish immigrant communities, not unlike you know New York's Lower East Side, with which many people are familiar. They eventually migrated out to the suburbs where they raised my parents, and my parents raised me and my two brothers in what I think historically has been a pretty common trajectory for uh, new arrivals to the U.S. I eventually uh, came out east to Columbia for college, where I studied math and history, um, but actually initially thought I was going to be a, a rabbi, um, and I spent a little bit of time in rabbinical school. Mm. And uh, during that time period when I was you know, still exploring a little bit, trying to uh, discover maybe my true calling and wasn't sure I had quite found it yet, I took an interest in bioethics. Mm. Uh, I eventually shifted course and joined a post-bac program and uh, headed down the pre-med route. Interesting. Uh, and you ended up uh, settling in New York City and not going back to the second city, Chicago. <laughs> yeah. You know, that started as sort of a medical school where I got in, and that's how it worked out. But I eventually met my wife in medical school, and we're sort of based here, and her family's here. So is your wife a doctor, too? She is. She's in her second year of uh, the medicine residency, of which I am a chief medical resident. And so there is one very narrow domain in which I am her boss, and that's uh, here at work (laughs) for uh, a short period of time. Well, I met my wife during medical school, so actually the first day, but she went into pediatrics, so I never had that experience. (laughs) So you're now chief medical resident. Mm -hmm. So you've completed your residency, and you've got this leadership position. And I want to get a sense of what your year was like in the first half of the year, because the first half of the year, of course, starts in July and goes through to December. So what was chief residency like at Mount Sinai for Dr. Eric Bressman? in 2019. You know, for those who have been through a residency and especially who've been through a medicine residency have maybe a little bit of a picture in their mind of what the chief resident role is like, but it was pretty typical in that regard. We straddled this line between the residents and the administration. It's a part desk, part clinical job where we spend time on the wards. We're doing a lot of teaching, but we're also doing a lot of scheduling work. And like I said, for people who are familiar with this role, they sort of know it's to be kind of the least powerful position of anyone who has a little bit of power in the hospital. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Probably to the interns on day one of orientation and maybe to the the applicants on recruitment days, we may as well be the chair of medicine. But to a lot of other people, we're also (laughs) sort of cleaning up lunches and doing that kind of stuff. 
Yes, you're the person who has to fix the PowerPoint system when it doesn't go well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. At some point, though, you must have realized that this thing was coming. I'm an infectious disease specialist, and we were hearing about it in January and starting to get butterflies in our stomachs soon after. But how about you? My first memories of hearing about it were probably around that time, early to mid-January. It was, I think, when there were some WHO and CDC warnings coming out. There were articles in the Times. Um, and those were probably my first indications that there was something brewing. But you know, I think I read those a little bit with some passivity. At the time, I was thinking that uh, maybe this is another MERS or SARS, which never really quite made it to us. Mm-hmm. Locally, I think the more heightened alarm did first start to come to us out of Elmhurst. And that's no surprise because Elmhurst, just in terms of its geographic positioning, in terms of the makeup of the community, often gets hit first and in a lot of ways harder by a lot of these emerging infectious pathogens and certainly things that we don't as commonly see here uh, in the U.S. So even when we weren't thinking about a pandemic necessarily, we were still worried that Elmhurst might get exposed to this. And then interestingly, there was an intern in our program who probably sometime in February, really started raising the alarm bells for us at a time when I think a lot of us still Mm. weren't overly concerned. She, uh, in a prior sort of life, had been an anthropologist and had worked in Wuhan and had a lot of personal connections there. So she was talking to people there and and hearing probably a lot of things that weren't being reported in the news at the time Mm. and was really pushing us to get ready to push the administration to be ready in terms of PPE and uh, developing protocols for testing. And that definitely lit a fire under us, but Mm. I don't think anyone really could have been uh, prepared for what was to come. Well, even though I mentioned that we infectious disease doctors, it was on our radar screen. I don't think anyone could anticipate what ultimately happened back then in January. But at some point, the hospital administration must have noted, and of course, the epidemiologist noted that there were a lot of cases in New York City. And, and how was this communicated to you as chief resident? And how did it change your experience of being chief resident? I mean, it changed everything, if not overnight, in the span of a couple of weeks. It started with trying to really understand what were the the right testing algorithms for these patients and uh, trying to develop the appropriate infection protocol. Because early on, it was just a handful of cases and they could put on the hazmat suits and sort of treat this almost like uh, Ebola in a way where they could put them in negative pressure rooms in the ED, of which there are very few. I think that persisted for a couple of weeks. But pretty soon we were just completely inundated, both at Sinai and Elmer's, Elmer's even more so. And while we were working a lot on the weekends, during the week it was all administrative in terms of completely remaking the the structure of our floors, completely remaking the schedules of the residents to design a safer experience both for the patients and for the residents. And we were pretty quickly working 24 hours to to try and get that done, and I probably didn't have day off for two months. Yeah, that sounds overwhelming. And you must have also been responding to a lot of fear on the part of the residents that you were supervising. Absolutely. Early on, before we saw a lot of cases, that fear centered around having appropriate PPE because there was confusion. It was coming straight from the top. I mean, the CDC had kind of mixed guidelines about um, what was appropriate PPE, that sort of decision to go from wearing N95s to surgical masks were probably okay under a lot of circumstances, unless there was aerosolizing procedures going on. That sparked a lot of fear from the residents. We were definitely dealing with a lot of that backlash at that time to try and sort of 
communicate the party line, but also empathize with them because we ourselves who were working clinically on the weekends also weren't sure we totally felt comfortable going into rooms without uh, N95s at that time. Mm-hmm. So that was a big part of it. Yeah. In large teaching hospitals, the residents are very much on the front lines um, from a physician standpoint more than anybody. Yeah, and in a lot of ways are a little bit disenfranchised, don't have a big voice and follow instruction and and really are at the whim of the leadership because they trust the hospital to make the right decisions on their behalf, but they don't necessarily have the power to get up and say, I'm not doing this either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let's now shift to talk more about Elmhurst. For people who are not New Yorkers... Give us a comparison between Elmhurst, Queens, and the Upper East Side of Manhattan. <laughs> Elmhurst is, as I wrote a little bit about in the piece, is just a few miles away, but a world apart from life in Manhattan. 70% of the community in a recent survey is immigrants who weren't born here in the U.S. It's really just such a beautiful I think, tapestry of culture. Any direction you walk in from the hospital, you're sort of transplanted to a different place. Part of what the residents love about spending time at Elmhurst is the food there is just amazing. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and it's it's such a, a warm and, and special community, too. I really have such fond memories of the time that I spent at Elmhurst, the, the months I spent there through my years in medical school and, and years of training, because it really is such, a I think, a gracious and grateful community for everything that we provide to them. And in a lot of ways, really are dependent on Elmhurst Hospital. Did the fact that it's a largely immigrant community influence, you think, the way that COVID hit them? Yeah, you know, I think there are aspects that were tied back to it being a large immigrant community, but it's also very much a working class community. A lot of the people in that community hold jobs that we now recognize as essential jobs. Maybe before the pandemic, we wouldn't have necessarily thought of them as much. But for a number of reasons, Elmhurst was hit pretty hard and pretty fast. A lot of people live in multi-generational family homes. A lot of workers who maybe have uh, families in their home countries who are living here in close quarters together with other people in similar situations. For all those reasons, social distancing measures were not really easily adopted in that community. Mm -hmm. And it really ripped through the community very fast. So did the experience give you any insights or thoughts about our healthcare system? Yeah, certainly as it pertains to Elmhurst and Queens, the fact that Elmhurst was hit so hard was an outgrowth of years, I think, of a developing situation where in the past decade or so, a few hospitals have closed. Attention has been turned away from a community that has a lot of under and uninsured individuals in common hospital management parlance you might call an unfavorable payer mix. And it <laughs> left Queens with fewer than 200 ICU beds. There was a Times article recently that identified maybe threefold fewer acute care beds per person in the population in Queens as compared to neighboring Manhattan. And all of those things made the capacity to handle any sort of surge astronomically lower than what neighboring Manhattan had to offer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't think we necessarily need a reminder of this, but our healthcare system is driven by profit. You know, in some ways, this is something that maybe drives excellence, and in other ways, drives uh, massive inequity. And this is the yeah. eternal conundrum, probably, of capitalism. But I think for those of us who don't think that healthcare should be subjected to the whims of capitalism and view healthcare as, as a right. And I'm one of those people. It's a difficult thing. Pandemics are, among other things, a stress test of the healthcare system. And communities like Elmhurst were exposed as major fault lines. Mm. Yeah, well, you were talking to an ID doctor. And as you probably know, we skew very much in the same direction in our thoughts about the healthcare system. Do you um, 
want to comment at all about how your family reacted to your being right there in the center of it all? Yeah, there was fear. They were afraid. At the same time, they were reliant on me, I think, to explain the situation, to explain what the risk of this pathogen was to myself and to my wife and our 10-month-old child. Mm -hmm. We were getting calls on the regular to make sure that we were okay. In a lot of ways, I was handling them the same way I handled the residents, which was to sort of empathize and to share in their fear a little bit, but to also try and provide as much reassurance as possible. Because I went into the pandemic and the, the clinical time that I spent at Sinai at Elmhurst with the expectation that eventually I am going to be infected with this virus. I still believe that's the case, although it didn't happen as quickly as I expected. But understanding that I'm not necessarily the one who's at highest risk, but a lot of the patients that we care for are. Mm-hmm. Anything you wish that we as a country could have done differently in hindsight there in New York or about you personally? I mean, this is all using the retrospectoscope, but feel free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, like a lot of other people, wish that we had earlier and quicker response, that there had been early wide-scale testing, maybe sure. even the ability to do contact tracing, earlier stay-at-home orders. Yeah. Certainly the mayor's tweeting in early March that you know everyone should go out and enjoy themselves and not worry um, probably wasn't that helpful. But um, it's not necessarily that helpful to compare us to other countries that had more success because mm-hmm. part of what makes America so unique is also what made us particularly vulnerable in this mm-hmm. situation. We we take great pride in our civil liberties and we have states with very different outlooks on, on the world, mm-hmm. on their personal rights, and we have open borders between those states. I think if you were to put it in medical terms as a society, we aren't the most compliant patient, you know. <laughs> um, I have um, family in other countries and Israel and Switzerland and in a lot of other countries if you tell people you know you can't leave you can't walk 100 feet from their house they're gonna follow those orders they're gonna do whatever the government says that's not America Americans (laughs) aren't gonna necessarily listen to those orders and so I think we need to take that for what it is and um, accept that we kind of have to deal with the population that we have so how are things now Things are better. The cases have slowed down dramatically, as I'm sure you've heard, Mm -hmm. for I think a period of some number of weeks up until probably the past week or two, there was this kind of calm after the storm, which was this eerie silence. On the one hand, the social distancing measures had worked, the curve had been flattened, the number of COVID cases was dramatically lower, but at the same time, a lot of the, the typical patients that we were seeing and were still wondering kind of where are they, weren't coming back to the hospital yet. Elmhurst in particular really saw this because I think a lot of the media reporting that surrounded it made people a little bit afraid of the hospital. Mm. Among the many things that is going to emerge as all the dust settles from this is the toll that this took on non-COVID patients who, you know, were otherwise chronically ill and may become acutely ill. And we already started to see this, Mm. uh, who probably suffered as a result of it. They started to, you know, trickle back and the numbers are getting back to more routine census. So that's been pretty reassuring. You know, as a chief resident, even though my year now is wrapping up, a lot of what we're going to reflect on and try and address as all of this settles down is the toll that this took, I think, emotionally on a lot of our frontline staff and on our residents, because it was traumatic. You know, one of the things I really wish I'd been better prepared for was dealing with the emotional and, and cognitive trauma that um, caring for patients in the early part of the pandemic would take on the residents. Mm. There was so much uncertainty and a lot of the calls that I was getting, especially from our residents at Elmhurst, would be post-call, 8 a.m., 9 a.m., just tears and wondering what happened, what went wrong, why did so many patients die overnight, why are they getting worse, and what could we have done differently? And, yeah. and to have to reflect on those cases 
you know, even in small numbers is pretty traumatic. I think we all have cases that we look back to from our careers that we still remember in pretty fresh terms and are still traumatic for us. And to have 10 to 20 of those in a shift or 100 of those in a week, the collective toll that is, it's going to be PTSD for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what's next for you? (laughs) I'm going on to do a health policy research fellowship uh, through what used to be called the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Scholars Program. Uh, It's now called the National Clinician Scholars Program. So I'll be at Penn next year studying some of these big health systems issues and thinking how we can be better prepared as a as a country as a as a healthcare system infrastructurally for next time i guess well i want to thank you for taking the time to talk today i look forward to hearing about your career in the future and once again this is paul sachs and i've been joined by eric pressman who is chief medical resident at mount sinai talking about his experience dealing with covid19 in new york city thank you very much thanks for having me dr sachs